Guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series that aims to inspire you and others by bringing you the best people in the business, authors, consultants, trainers, what have you, thought leaders. When it comes to Agile, they are here. Make sure to go to the website of masteringagility.org and subscribe to that all-new newsletter. And OptiLearn will provide you with a discount code for all their scrum.org related courses. How awesome is that? Hey, you know when companies advocate for keeping stable teams when working with Scrum, when working with Agile, that's good for productivity, right? Today, we're talking about doing the exact opposite. Heidi Helfand is here, author of the book Dynamic Reteaming, and she advocates for more change, more dynamic in that team consistency. How does it relate to, for instance, the Tuckman's model? I'm curious to find out. Heidi Helfand, welcome to today's show. How are you doing? It's an honor to have you. Hi, Sander. So nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Doing well. Good. Glad to hear that. Hey, today we're talking about the exact opposite of what most companies seem to be doing is to have stable teams because most organizations seem to think that stable teams means that's better. You have written a book called Dynamic Reteaming. That's kind of the opposite. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've been in the software industry for over 20 years now working at different startups that have grown bigger and, uh, my my whole professional experience and path has taught me that team change is inevitable. We're going to uh, not have the same <laughs> team structure on and on and on. It's really kind of, uh, there are evolutions and um, lots of changes that just happen naturally. And then sometimes you catalyze changes. So let's look there instead of trying to keep things not changing. What's that? That's what's that? That reluctance to that change. I mean, we as humans are naturally reluctant to change, but usually in the way that we work, we are more responsive. What is it in in the team dynamics that makes us so reluctant to that change? Well, I I think sometimes we're reluctant because the thought of doing something different might be uh, a little bit scary or uncomfortable. Sometimes we we might uh, fear the unknown. Um, in other cases, uh, some of the most incredible teams that I've worked with in my career, that teams catalyze their own changes. Maybe they have a retrospective and they determine in order for us to be more effective in how we work and how we collaborate, we would prefer to have a different structure. So let's make a change. What's the point, going back a few years, what's, what's the point that made you figure... Hey, there's something interesting going on here. What can we do mm. with this? Well, I yeah, I love to read and I, I access a wide variety of books to solve problems in the work that I do. I've always done that. And I, I just got to the point where I kept reading the advice that if you really want effective software teams, you know, forming, storming, norming, performing, keep those people together, keep that team composition the same, give it some time. And, you know, that's kind of the focus. But I looked back on my career and I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, I've been on some amazing teams 
where we would deliberately switch people from one team to the next to share information. Or we'd catalyze a team off to the side to start a new product. Like we would deliberately change teams. And then sometimes just, you know, like like the course of nature, people might join our teams or people might leave our teams for whatever reason. And so I thought to myself, well, in the pursuit of, of excellence, especially when your company is growing like crazy, it, it doesn't really, it didn't really make sense to me to focus on that stability. And I had been part of companies that have been wildly successful. I mean, the first one we invented products, go to meeting and go to webinar. The company wound up getting acquired a couple of times. Some of those products live on. The second company I was a part of, a property management software company called Appfolio. I was there as the 10th team member. I left when there were about, I think, 800-ish people that company went public. I mean, we changed as a matter of course. And so I and then I was at another company, Procore. I started at 800. I left, I think, when there were like 3,000 or 3,500. And that was a growth and change at a completely different um, scale. And I, I had looked back when I was at the second startup and I was like, wait a minute. We're not doing this wrong. Like all these books that I read talked about the goal is stability. The goal is trying to keep more things the same. And I thought to myself, well, it's counterproductive to some of the goals that we have as a growing company. So instead, what if we what if we have a different lens? What if we take a look at helping changes succeed? You know, what might open up there? So I became very curious about that. And then I interviewed people around the world at different companies and then wrote the book Dynamic Reteaming. The first version of it wound up writing a second edition with O'Reilly which was published in 2020. Are there any prerequisites when it comes to being open to that change? I mean, people seem to still focus on, hey, we got to stick together. Are there, in in those companies that you just mentioned, are there any specific behaviors or unspoken rules um, that make that change uh, prone to success? I think if you're in a company and you know that you're growing, it helps to talk about it. For example, when someone is interviewing to join a company, you can talk about change and that you have a more changeable dynamic on your teams as opposed to what they might expect at a company that doesn't have a lot of growth. So I think you can have parity between your hiring and your uh, interviewing and you know you want to prime people for what they might expect. And so I think that's one way that you can help, you know, just by talking about it. And I think also including teams in your organizational change decisions is really important. And, you know, like we were talking about before, it's wonderful when teams own their change, when teams get together and think we should merge with another team and this is why, or we want to split our team in half and here's how we're going to do it. This is why we want to do it. Giving this sort of ability to teams is really powerful. And I think it's the kind of agency that a lot of people want and you can really generate that change through 
having follow-up retrospectives as well. So you have a retrospective, you decide something you want to try or a change, you can always go back. And then you have a retrospective again. So you kind of like just have these continual feedback loops that guide how your organization changes and develops. Um, Sometimes you step back and take a look. You might want to plan a larger change and include people in that. Um, But, uh, you know, what what I've noticed is that Teams can have a lot of success when you trust them. So trust is another prerequisite, I think. But trust is really, trust is earned, right? It's not a given thing. How does that work with startups, for instance? It, that's going to be hard, especially when you're scaling, when you're growing. You don't know what to expect and you can't earn, you, you don't have earned that trust yet because you're continuously growing. Therefore, you're continuously stacking new people up. How does that work? Yeah, so to build trust, you focus on relationship building. You focus on follow through. If you say one thing, you need to follow through on it. Those are a couple of different ways that people build trust. I like that idea of, you know, forming communities where people know each other. And then later, if they change their team, when they join the new one, it's not like they're strangers with each other. You know, people, you know, in my career, I have experience where maybe I would have a challenge with another person. And I got advice early on from one of the founders I worked with who said, well, why don't you go have lunch with them? In other words, which meant this is Klaus Schauser, who founded uh, two of the startups I was at, uh, one called Expert City, where we made GoToMeeting, and then the other one called Appfolio. He, He would always encourage this relationship building. And I've remembered that from years on. Another founder that I worked with, who was his co-founder at Appfolio, I had, I came to him one day and I'm like, I have this issue with this other person. And he said to me, Hi, how do you help that person be successful? And it was another kind of lens because it was like, yeah, how do I put my attention out, focus on the other person and help them succeed? And these two pieces of advice I've taken over the years and I think about them every day. I I find myself saying to other people when they have challenges, well, how, how can you work together and help them be successful? And I think that's kind of one of the keys, like we're working together we're collaborating together. We need to care about each other and be in it together for the success of ourselves and, and the whole company. Um, I had thought about this in the past as sort of like a found, having a founder's mindset. And those, those are advice, like I, I had this advice from these two founders. I had an uh, advice from another uh, coach that I worked with at the first startup. Her name was BJ Bartlett. I was in a class with her about communication skills and giving presentations and whatnot. And she would encourage us to always put your attention out, focus on the other person. That's one of the things that you know many coaches do. You want to put your attention out, focus on listening, asking powerful questions, trying to draw out the other person. But I even think in general, like you get to a meeting and you're here with someone else Many of us are in distributed situations, so maybe we're, we're using some kind of screen sharing, whatever. Um, but the whole idea is like focus on bias towards focusing on the other person. And then, you know, 
you get your needs met and, and focus, ask the questions that you need. But, but, but really, I think it's a, it's an awesome form of uh, leadership to really just always just put your attention out. I think it helps build trust too. And I think it, it helps you help someone else. So it's one of the ways that I've kind of, I guess, operationalized the, how can you help this other person be successful? It's like, you want to just focus out. That's incredibly powerful. Uh, but it does require you to shut up that inner monologue. How did you get trained to do that? Because that's one of the most, one of the toughest things to do. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm trained as a co-active coach with Coaches Training Institute. Um, so co-active coaching is about facilitating conversations that enable people to make changes in their lives. Maybe they want to be different or do something different. Um, and so we're trained in different levels of listening. And one of the, part of getting better at listening is learning how to self-manage and kind of manage your own agenda that pops up. So if you're in a conversation with someone else and they're talking and you're thinking about, Oh, what am I going to have for lunch? Uh, that's you, you get trained through practice. You start noticing these things and then quieting that voice. So then you can kind of reconnect and put your attention out. And, you know, sometimes I will try to, you know, look at someone's eyes or look at their face to reconnect. It's a little challenging with, <laughs> virtually yeah, makes it a little challenging virtual point. stuff yeah. but you know we we do the best that we can but i th i think with practice on listening uh you can get better at it i did the co-active coaching uh, courses myself too i think it's one yeah. of the most intense courses that i've ever done but it need you need it really works better with that physical presence when you're able to see body language uh, just taking a little step back uh, you mentioned that you interviewed people from across the world. Did you see any differences when it comes to different cultures, how they react to this? Or is that dynamic reteaming, is that a common denominator? That's a good question. I did not notice anything that stood out in that regard. And mind you, um, there are a lot more stories to harvest around the world on dynamic reteaming. Um, this is a limited sample. Um, but I, one thing that I did notice is that at the, there are these base patterns of reteaming regardless of location. And there, you know, the, through gathering the stories, I, from a bottoms up kind of way generated the, the patterns. Um, so it was very much kind of, based on what I learned from talking with all of the people. Um, That's pretty uh, awesome to hear because I'm, I'm that, that makes me wonder what that is that makes it, you, you, of course you mentioned uh, there are differences, but there, apparently there is also some um, general aspect that people do have that's common everywhere. I'm, I'm interested in finding out how that works. Now, you mentioned that this works for startups. How does this work for the already really large organizations? Yeah, so it changes happen regardless of the size of your organization, maturity level of the organization, whether it's been around 100 years or whether it's been around four years or a month. 
um, we we do encounter different kinds of changes, and um, you know the the most basic change is <clears throat> someone's going to join. They might join your team. They'll join your company. They'll join a team, and then sometimes they're they or someone else will leave the team. So I, it's one of the patterns. It's one by one pattern, and you know the dynamic is different with the team when one person joins or when one person leaves, it's just a different, we, we miss them. It's a different sort of dynamic or people bring new ideas, differences um, into the team. And uh, that can happen if your company is 10,000 people or um, 20. And sometimes I think if you are at a really, uh, at a larger company, you might not notice some of the changes happening. You're farther from them. Some of the changes you will notice if they're in your immediate vicinity. So things that are happening, if you're in an engineering group and things are changing in your marketing department, if you don't work every day with those people, you might not notice what's going on. So there's some different levels of proximity here. Also, I think with um, working with distributed people in different locations working in a distributed team, you you also might not notice some of the same cues that you would see in a co-located office. So, yeah, so these, you know, and, and, you know, that's the one by one pattern. There's other patterns like the isolation pattern where you form a team off to the side to have a completely new focus, good for an emergency situation, good for catalyzing new products. So you can do that at any size. So the the patterns are really like I like to think them as think of them as like base patterns. They're just at a very small level. Um, so all all sizes of companies could benefit from this. And what what's the cadence that you would use this in? Is the is the reteaming something that you do once a month, once a year, once every few few years? Yeah. So so there's like. Natural reteaming, reteaming that is just going to happen that you don't necessarily plan. And then there's reteaming that you might plan deliberately for a specific purpose. And it's always good to have a purpose of if you're going to catalyze changes in your teams, you need to know why you're doing it and have a reason for doing it. And often it's like one of the options to consider. So, for example, if let's talk about deliberate reteaming, and then we can talk about just like the reteaming that might happen. So like with the deliberate reteaming, you might notice that for whatever reason, one of your teams got quite large and maybe some of the work has become unrelated. You get to a meeting where you're planning out your work and it, it doesn't feel right anymore. It doesn't feel like everyone is focused on this planning that maybe you should split or maybe it's hard to make decisions in that large group. So what do you do? One of, one of the things you might do is change how you facilitate the planning so that more voices are heard. Um, maybe you make some of the meeting attendance optional. You might organize in a different way. Another option could be, well, maybe some teams decide we should split the team. We should work as independent teams. And maybe that doing that does not cause a lot of dependencies between the teams. Sometimes it's better to keep teams together if you're going to cause a lot more problems by splitting. But some teams decide to split. Like it's one of the patterns. It's called grow and split. Some, you know, so it's like 
you it's it, at work it's all problem trading so you you have a problem and you can work with your teams to come up with some potential solutions and there's pros and cons of each of these and then maybe you try one and you agree to reflect on it in the upcoming retrospective so you know sometimes you're going to you're going to maybe do a reteaming as a solution and sometimes not reteaming does not solve every problem that you have um you could have worse problems sometimes if if you reteam depending on how it goes down if you if you plan a reteaming off to the side and you don't include the people you don't get any input and then you make sweeping changes across 20 teams um you could have a lot bigger problems than you were trying to solve in the first place so Reteaming is is hard. Reteaming is challenging. There are chapters in the book about planning for reteaming, and you, you can't take it lightly. It's like a change initiative. Even a small change, like someone moving from team A to team B, could be very upsetting to people. So you want to work out any changes with people um, as opposed to imposing change. It 2020 was very hard for many people. There were a lot of layoffs. It was extremely painful. It's kind of the the darker side to reteaming. People aren't usually included in that, and and it's can be horrific. Uh, so there's that. Um, that's why I think uh, like some of my favorite reteaming situations is when the people want the change and the people suggest the change. Now sometimes companies integrate reteaming into just the way that they work. They pair and switch pairs and move across teams at a regular cadence, or as, as in a future podcast um, that, that you're telling me about with Chris Smith at Redgate, they will add a cadence reteam and people will um, have some ability to select and give input into which team they join. It's a very exciting story. And I, I highlight some of uh, Chris and Redgate in dynamic reteaming version two. Um, but anyway, sometimes you catalyze the reteaming and you start it and you need to be careful. You need to plan, you need to prepare, and you need to include people. Other times you will be surprised as a leader, as a team member, as a colleague, someone is going to get another job and they're going to leave. And then you need to be sure that in your company, you've built redundancy into whatever they're doing. So you're not left with a huge problem when someone leaves. You know, other times, you know, maybe someone indicates a preference to move to another team so they could work with someone they want to learn from. Um, some of these are going to come to you and some of these you're going to catalyze. Yeah, you want to avoid having those single points of failure. That 2020 challenge and 2021 as well. Um, yeah. COVID, you you wrote this book before COVID. Did you see any significant changes um, that, sub, that that submerged by the entire pandemic? I actually finished the second version of the book during COVID, and I think it I think it was published in October of 2020. But I no, maybe July. Can't can't remember at this point. Um, but I definitely included more stories about when people leave teams. Um, so that was something that was surrounding many of us at that time. And so the sections about um, when you have to say goodbye or managing transitions from teams is a whole area of the book that I developed due to what I experienced and learned during COVID. 
Um, the work of William Bridges, he wrote a book called Transitions in 2004. He talks about appreciating endings. Sometimes we're in a neutral zone and then you're at a new beginning. So it's kind of like a reteaming might happen. You hear about it. Let's say you hear that your teams are going to change and you're brought along from for the ride. Like it, it helps to kind of try to get closure and appreciate how we work together and what we did together in a team, then sometimes you feel like you're kind of in the middle. You're not quite in the new situation yet, but, and, and you have some questions. There's a whole period of transitions and you can maybe vision out what you want the future state to be like. And then you get into that future state. So like, let's say there's a team and it splits and you're in that new team. Finally, right. You finally there. Sometimes these things drag out and then, okay, how are you going to kickstart the team? There's a wonderful book, Diana Larson, um, Ainsley Nyes wrote called Liftoff that has ideas about kicking off your new team, what you're going to do. Chapter 13 of Dynamic Reteaming has the concept of a team calibration. So how do you align as a new team and, you know, get on the same page to move together and accomplish your goals? You mentioned appreciating what a team did together. Yeah. What if I can, you can hear people think, what if the collaboration wasn't that well? What if the relationship kind of went south? Do you still want to pause at that point, try to appreciate and celebrate, if you will, have a drink uh, on that collaboration that has been the things that you've achieved or how do you, how do you split ways in that, in, in such a situ situation? So, Sometimes maybe the team wasn't our favorite. It wasn't like that situation that we felt brought out the best of us. I feel I still think we should get together and uh, and talk about the ending and um, see what comes about there. Um, you might be surprised at what you learn from each other. So I would always still encourage having the conversations, acknowledging the ending. Maybe even acknowledging, you know, we went through some hard times together and it wasn't particularly easy. Okay, well, maybe there's some, you can have a facilitator help with some of these, uh, some of these things. There's ideas in the book uh, about this as well, I believe. And like, okay, well, what are we going to take from this moving forward? I'm sure that there's something, uh, if people are asked that they can, they can apply going forward, even if it's doing something different. Um, than what they experienced. Yeah. Now, indeed, moving forward, we're going to re-team, and you uh, just mentioned having kind of events, uh, working together. Uh, what kind of aspects do you want to take into account when re-teaming? Like, do you look at people's characters, whether they match or not? Do you look at experience? Or is this just, let's see what happens? What do you take into account? What do you take into account? So... So if you're forming a new team, let's say you have a bunch of existing teams, you know you need to form a new team. Maybe it's a work-driven reteaming. You know you're going to work on a, a new product. In, in many of our companies, we have, um, in our software teams, maybe there's a pattern to the types of roles that find themselves on teams. Maybe you have software engineers. Maybe you have a quality role. Maybe you have a user experience role. Maybe you have a product manager role. So there's usually some sorts of role uh, definitions that you might typically have on teams. 
so so that's kind of one factor to think about. Um, I like to, when forming new teams, consider them to be opportunities for people to switch. So let's say you're going into a new area, you're focusing on on building something in a new market. There could be people that have experience or are interested in this market. So you want to, if you have a um, any kind of meetings with the whole team, you know, the wider team or any sorts of electronic communication that you send out regularly, you can let people know about this opportunity and see who volunteers in. Like we're looking for people to join this team. Sometimes we're looking for people with certain uh, skills. Other times um, we're looking for people to to learn together. So it, I think it it, it really kind of depends on on you know why you're forming the new team, what's the compelling mission. But I always like to to um, start out by seeking volunteers and see who kind of raises your their hand because it's usually an indication that maybe they're ready for a change. And if it doesn't work out for them to join that team, you can. Um, almost sort of do some risk risk management with them and make sure that they're engaged in what they're doing or what changes can you make to help them thrive. So it, it serves as kind of a, an engagement uh, indicate an interest indicator. You could also help them level up um, with some learning materials or other experiences. If they're not, if you don't feel like they're quite ready for the team. Um, Dana Pileva is a coach in New York she has done activities and she has some self-selection reteaming cards where people indicate skills and other things. I think you, um, I'm, I'm more of let's go with the energy and people's interests, see who volunteers. If you get no volunteers, see who you might invite. A lot of it in terms of team chemistry, I think is about luck. I think a lot of it is you might figure out and think you're forming a dream team, but they really don't work well together and you find that out later. Sometimes if people too far removed from the, the, the kind of tactical level might not know about conflicts between people, I think it's always good to give to include people and give them choice in the team compositions. There's almost like a shadow network of relationships that, you know, managers, directors, et cetera, if they're prescribing teams, they might not know about this stuff. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's, there's an art to it. Um, and there's no kind of straightforward prescription. And I think that's, one of the reasons why I wrote dynamic reteaming, because I mean, it's hard. Organizational change is hard. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm still, I don't have all the answers. I'm trying to get better at it through <laughs> hearing and learning from colleagues through different stories. I I've learned a lot. And as my career progresses and I experience this material from different vantage points, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely still learning. I like the openness to that change uh, as well. Uh, is that, do you involve team members in the whole selection process in, or the interviews? Because at this point, most organizations still have managers, HR, uh, having those conversations where personally, I like to invite my team members because they are the ones who will be working with new people. What's your perspective on that? 
Um, do you invite team members to participate in team assignment or what is? Yeah, no, the, the, the interview with the potential new team members. Oh, you mean like when we, when we interview? Yeah. I mean, the team members interview them. They interview their peers and, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's sometimes people might interview someone and that person joins a different team. Um, but we, like in, in many companies, you kind of build the community together and you align on your interview strategy. And there are different people that get involved in interviewing and you kind of, you want to kind of spread it out and, and then, you know, have documented kind of procedures for how you interview and what you look for and stuff like that. Yeah, because it seems now still at this point that uh, most teams are surprised, hey, here you have a new team member and they basically have no say in the whole process. While that uh -huh. might really disrupt uh, their local dynamics that they have. Are there any, any tactics that you do outside of that documentation of interviewing techniques that you could do to limit uh, the damage there? Well, people usually, uh, you and there's many different ways to approach uh, building your teams. Um, so, you know, it's usually understanding kind of the, the roadmaps of the work that the different teams are working on, what's coming ahead, who's on the teams now, what do they need? You can have conversations with people from each team on a regular basis to understand the needs. Let's say you're, let's say you're doing a centralized approach to hiring where you, you continuously hire and you have a pool of people and then you determine kind of which team you can, um, you know, understand the needs of the teams from the team's perspective. And then you could also understand from the future work perspective and, you know, the, there's you you want to create like a pull system for people to, to to join teams like you want the teams to you know want the people on the teams and to work together and to build the teams so you you have to involve the teams in this kind of situation so so that's kind of like like if you if you hire on and then kind of place people in teams you can do things where people have like a tour of duty or experience what it's like on different teams you can have in chat, one of the chapters in here, the one by one chapter, it talks about different onboarding tactics. So you can bring in new people, have them go through a cohort sort of onboarding experience. Maybe you bring people in a couple of times a month. They level up their knowledge. You bring people to them from different teams through organized events. Building networks is one thing that's talked about in this book. There's a stories from Bryce Bow about having new people, having them in like a ropes course or some organized kind of learning area. And then you bring in people, they build their networks across the teams and you do this sort of, it's called by Andrew Mutz in, in this book. Uh, one of the people I interviewed, like a fit operation. What is the P what, what does the per the new person want to work on? What are they good at? Where do they want to grow? And then what are the needs of the teams and where's a good place for them to start? Where's a good mentor for them on a team that can be their first pair for a while? So there's, he calls it like a fit operation. 
So there is kind of that. I've There's other ways that if you do more of a decentralized hiring, maybe the people local for, to the teams are the hiring team. They do the interviews, they hire in, they know what to look for, and it's done kind of in a more decentralized way. So you can do that. I think either way, the teams need to want the people. If you have a push situation where you're forcing people onto teams, you will have challenges. And I think, you know, we're here to help each other be successful. So cultivating that sort of learning mindset is important. And, I mean, it definitely relates to to how you build an interview. People need to be able to ask the questions that they want to ask that um, to, to help them understand if, if, some, if it's someone that they want to hire. Um, there's a lot of different kind of guidelines for this. There are legal uh, things related to this. Um, hiring is, uh, there's a book called Scaling Teams that is, a, I believe, another O'Reilly book that I um, <laughs> took a look at recently has some interesting perspectives on this as well. And there, so, so there are quite a bit of approaches how you could handle that. Now we covered that continuity for, uh, for, for teams. What about predictability? Because we still seem to be looking for that predictability when it comes to delivering our value. I can imagine mm-hmm. when we're working with dynamic reteaming that predictability might not be that stable. Well, it, it depends on how you look at it. So like the approach that I love and um, believe in strongly and have experienced at multiple companies is using lean agile metrics to forecast when work will be done. And so essentially each team has a way that they track their work. And so what you want to do is really instrument the workflows so you can understand your cycle time when you start working on something and when you deliver it. So you measure that time and it's in elapsed time. So there are things that teams can do to um, forecast when their work will be done. So you look at that cycle time, you try to get it stable, and then you can do things like Monte Carlo to forecast when the work will be done. You try to make probabilistic forecasts. So we want teams to see and control their workflows and try to experiment to impact them. So what teams might learn when they instrument their workflows with, there are toolkits like Actionable Agile, wonderful book called Actionable Agile Metrics by Dan Vacanti. He wrote another one called When Will It Be Done? So basically using his methods, you only need like, I don't know, 10 to 13 data points in the past So once you finish like 10 to 13 work items, okay, might not take you that long to do that. Any kind of reteaming will create a temporary slowness in your flow because you're ramping up new people. That's to be expected. But you want to instrument that workflow so you can look in the past and understand 85% of the time it takes us usually five days or less to get a work item through our flow. So you want to instrument the flow, you want to know your flow, and then you use the past data to make probabilistic forecasts in the future. So that's the approach that I take with that. Some people estimate, some people use pointing systems. That's fine. You can still do that, but you want to instrument the workflows so you can learn from the past on how to forecast the future. Because there are many possible futures when we commit to work. And uh, so using a strategy 
like these lean agile metrics and the flow metrics is the, is what I advocate. It's what I put as any part of a strategy around this. Yeah, I like the work by Dan Vacanti too. Um, it's highly recommended also in the, in the when you're working with Scrum or with Kanban. Um, yeah. I can definitely recommend looking into that as well for those listening. Uh, does it work like cross-pollination as well? Like You have an experienced team now uh, who's been through a couple of dynamic reteaming sessions. Does it help to spread that knowledge and experience across the organization even though they might still have their fit in that team, that original team. So you're saying, does it help to kind of move them because they've been moved before or they've moved themselves before? Yeah, support the, the dynamic reteaming throughout oh, the organization. Well, well, we're not trying to change for the sake of changing. And dynamic reteaming is not something to like roll out in your company. It's just... Sometimes our teams are going to change. Uh, the book has several stories proving that point that software development is not a static team activity. There are going to be a lot of different changes in any software company. These are some stories. These are the, it's almost like an anthropology. These are some of the, the patterns that you might notice one by one. People might join a team. People might leave a team, grow and split. Sometimes teams are going to get bigger and then they're going to split in half or in several pieces, merging. Sometimes teams are going to join together and form larger teams or at the company level. This stuff happens at multiple levels. Maybe you're going to acquire another company and then blend the people. And then there's, uh, let's see, one by one, grow and split, merging. Then there's isolation. Sometimes you're going to catalyze a team off to the side to solve a production issue that you're encountering or maybe to catalyze new work. And then switching, the last pattern is that sometimes for our own growth and development, we want to, might want to just work on a different team. And so how can we facilitate that? So these are just things that happen in you know, organizational development at many software companies. Um, so through time, the more dynamic an environment you experience, you'll take things along the way. Maybe you'll see practices like if the team, if I'm on a new team, it helps to come up with some working agreements. It helps to talk about what do we want to be like when things get difficult? Because things usually when we're developing products, sometimes we might have conflict. So how do we want to be in that? There's like practices that we can do. So the more you do it, if you apply some of the team calibration tactics, you can get good at that and then keep using them. Um, but in general, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, team, team change. I like to say team change is inevitable. You might as well get good at it and just help it succeed because it's going to happen. I like that. How does, dynamic reteaming differ or um, even be similar to the Tuckman model? Well, Tuckman, Tuckman talks about forming, storming, norming, performing, and then adjourning was added later with a colleague of his. Um, I like that model because I think it's catchy. Like, oh, let's get together. Let's gel as a team. Like, let's, let's get you know, let's get to know each other and all that. I think it's very, it's catchy and it's really handy. But I think that the part that Tuckman forgot was the stagnating, right? Forming, storming, norming, performing, adjoining, and but sometimes stagnating. Sometimes 
it feels like the life is not present in our team anymore. It's not engaging. You know, maybe we feel like we're not making progress, like something needs to change. And we can feel refreshed in our careers if we don't have this mindset of, oh, they just need more time to gel, keep them together. They'll work out their funk. Well, no, like sometimes you just want to change. So like, let's get out, break out of stagnation and like do something different. I think some of us, sometimes it's hard to notice if you're stagnating that if you ever have a job change and you look back, you might be like, oh, I should have left a lot earlier than this. Like sometimes it's hard to get the the clues about it. But then other times it's like right in our face, like I'm ready to leave. Um, I don't feel like I'm making any progress here anymore. I, I need to kind of move. Or or maybe like you're tired of working on something. And so I always, I always like to encourage people to pair or to do ensemble mob programming because – you're in it with other people, and then it makes it easier for you to switch later if you're ready to work on something else. You're not the only one that knows this feature. There's stories in the book from Richard Sheridan from Menlo Innovations who talks about towers of knowledge. Like We don't want to get in a situation where we're the only one who knows that feature. We can't take a vacation. We have to take our calls when we're at solve a production issue when we're on vacation. If anything like that is going on in in a company, you got to change it so that there's redundancy so that more people know how to support these things. So you're not like chained to a feature. So I think ramping it back, like, you know, there's a lot of different ideas and concepts we, that, that we learn and we just need to think about them and apply them. So that's how, that's my application of Tuckman's model. And Um, you know, I think for some of us, stagnation can be very real. And once you're out of it, you might look back and think, wow, I'm really glad I made a switch. Definitely. That happens way too often, that stagnation. In that regard, this feels a lot more pragmatic. Now, what do you, would you recommend organizations to start doing first when it comes to this theory? Um, basically, I think, um, really keeping in touch with the people on your teams and always making sure that they have a team situation, in which they feel like they're learning a lot and contributing. And if not, how can you help them find a different situation within your company? So sharing opportunities of new teams or new projects, I think is really important. And just like, like we we want to help each other succeed and we want to help keep people engaged in learning. So really just focus on the people. That's one thing. Another thing is trust your teams to suggest changes to their composition during retrospectives. Teams might talk about how their work is going, how they're working together. However, another kind of improvement lever that you can encourage is, all right, what needs to change in our team structure going forward so that we can be more effective? Like just kind of normalizing the idea that the people closest to the work have amazing ideas for the future organization of the teams. And you might not see it if you're a manager off to the side or a director, VP, whatever, you're too abstracted away, but trust the teams to suggest how they might shift going forward. And, you know, a third thing would be, and I'll leave it at three, is 
Reteaming doesn't solve every situation. The book has some, I, I think, some interesting stories and perspectives on teams that change. Uh, there's also anti-patterns in there as well. Like sometimes changing teams can give you some problems. So you can't take it lightly. And it's not going to solve. I wish there were things that, you know, magic wand, solve all the problems, make everything easier. I mean, this stuff is hard. So there's dark sides to many things. And there are to reteaming as well. So um, proceed with caution. Uh, get good at it. Learn from colleagues. And then try small experiments. If you would find that magic bullet, that magic touch, you'd be millionaire. You'd be set for life. <laughs> I love the actionability here. Now is the last question for people, because you had mentioned quite a bit of stories and people telling stories in your book. Where can people find your book? Where can people find more information about you? Yeah, um, you can visit HeidiHelfand.com, and it's H-E-I-D-I-H-E-L-F as in Frank, A-N-D.com. There's a dynamic reteaming section in that website where you can, there's a lot of videos and uh, materials in there that you can access. You can find the book um, in the O'Reilly Learning Platform, so uh, the book is Second edition of the book is published by O'Reilly. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, many places where books are sold. There's an audio version of the first edition, which is in Audible. The second edition audio version is currently only in the O'Reilly platform. Um, but that's, uh, you know, there's, there's different ways that you can act. There's Kindle versions. So, so quite a bit of, uh, of opportunities for people to dig into this work as I do feel this would be super helpful to quite a bit of organizations. Thank you. Heidi and thank you very much for being here. Thanks for discussing this with us. Thanks for having me, Sander. I enjoyed it. Me too. Again, Heidi, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I also appreciate it, guys, that you, the listeners, joined us again for this episode. I'm going to say this again, subscribe to that newsletter, stay up to date when it comes to this podcast, get that discount code by OptiLearn. Did you know, by the way, that we have an all new media kit? So if you want to engage with us, if you want to do some nice events together, find the information in that media kit, find it in the media page on the website of masteringagility.org. Now, next week, we're going to zoom in even more on the dynamic reteaming part, uh, how Redgate software does it. So if you want to know more, want to find out, you're curious, stay tuned for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.